Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Magic is not in its autumn. It is the young god born again with a sword in hand, and it is the domain of the superior. Welcome to We Are Krakoa. I'm Nico. I'm Dylan. I'm Kyle. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive the experience. Now, before we can get into those magical words expressed through Excalibur, we have to talk about a little miniseries starring Franklin Richards, who, if you don't know, is a mutant, but was born by the Fantastic Four, Reed and Sue Richards. Dylan, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, there is going to be this new four-issue miniseries that I believe is just called X-Men Fantastic Four that's focusing on Franklin. And the creative team is Chip Zardusky and Terry and Rachel Dodson. You know, this isn't the first time that there's been a lot of focus on Franklin Richards. Beyond being the go-to boy in the Marvel Universe whenever a magical boy was needed, the character has found himself in a dozen different titles, whether it's in the pages of Onslaught, where he and X-Man were Onslaught's endgame, or the future-present-past tense era, where he was Hyperstorm and Rachel Summers' husband. There have been so many different versions of Franklin Richards in the last few years as well. He had a really successful line of comics known as Franklin Richards, Son of a Genius by Chris Eliopoulos, who is a fantastic storyteller as well as a brilliant letterer and a terrific writer, super cool dude. And Franklin Richards isn't the only connection the X-Men have had to the Fantastic Four. The X-Men have interacted with the Fantastic Four time and time again. There was notably a miniseries around the time of Astonishing X-Men, something that was really interesting in the months following the end of New X-Men and the rise of Astonishing was once the delays began to set in, and it was really clear that the book wasn't going to go off without a hitch, they worked quickly to create a number of gap-bridging miniseries that could come out that were essentially one-off issues that they would expand to four issues and kind of smush some stuff in there. So there is sort of a long-running history of the X-Men of the Fantastic Four not really homogenizing very well. However, Dylan, you're like the Gen X guy. Didn't Franklin Richards do something with like Artie and Leech and Gen X in like the 90s? They did. Artie and Leech and Franklin Richards and Man-Thing and Howard the Duck and some weird alien chick that's only ever been in five issues had their own book called Daydreamers. Basically them having goofy little adventures right outside the mansion of Generation X. It, It was really weird. That's such a weird group of characters to stick together. I have to assume that this was going for a much more child-positive read. The book feels a little bit more kitty in its art, and I have no problem with books trying to skew younger in a positive way. I think it's great. We should have comics for people of all ages. I just feel like it might be, perhaps... Okay, so Daydreamers literally says on the cover of the first issue, from the pages of Generation X. And I can appreciate that, but I feel like perhaps Generation X wasn't always the most child-friendly book. Generation X was, especially shortly after this era, 
era because Daydreamers was well past the halfway point of Gen X's tenure. And shortly after this, they did a gritty reboot under the pen of Brian Wood with scripts and plots from Warren Ellis. So I can't help but wonder why this group of kids spinning out of this title was the way they tried to pull people in. Now, Kyle, I know you have your varying levels of experience with other parts of the Marvel Universe. You're mostly an X-Men guy, which is super badass. How much do you know about Franklin Richards and his legacy in the Fantastic Four? To be honest, not a lot. I've seen his little appearance with Power Pack, and I've seen his appearance in Days of Future Past, but that's really my extent of experience with him. So this is going to be a new experience for you with regard to the character. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm really looking forward to it. I really want to know where he's going to fit in with the rest of Mutant Dome. Now Dylan, have you read any of those previous iterations of the X-Men and Fantastic Four or Franklin Richards? I've read a few of them, not too much. I tend to stick to just X-Men and occasionally the crossovers that they have. So I'm think the only guy who's read a whole lot of Fantastic Four, I guess. I've read the complete Stan Lee era, the complete Byrne era, the complete Hickman era. I've read a lot of Fantastic Four, I guess, in retrospect. Huh, that's interesting. So, oh, and I've read the Matt Fraction era, and yeah, okay, I've read a lot more Fantastic Four than I guess I thought. So this is like, I'm like, okay, I'm just suiting up for more Franklin. Jonah, as our resident Franklin, how do you feel about seeing a scientific approach to youth in mutantdom? Like, how does it feel to know that they're not just looking at this as a political book about a minority trying to come into its own, but they're remembering that members of this group are going to have interests. They're going to have drives and desires like science. I find it fairly fascinating. I'm super excited. I don't know a lot about Franklin Richards, but I will say reading Uncanny, one of the things I love about Kitty Pride is her love for technology and how smart she is and basically a prodigy in coding, in uh, engineering and everything amazing that she's in. And I think it just adds breadth and depth to characters to show them have different interests and it's very similar to what we say about writing characters who are minorities whose only characteristic isn't their minority. You know, you don't want to make an X-Men whose only characteristic is just their mutant power. You have to give them more and you have to give them a more rounded, well-defined character trait list. So them going into Franklin and him deciding what world he wants to be a part of, whether it's the world of science with his father and mother, or is it the world of the mutants with his own kind? I'm fairly fascinated to see where that's going to go. Excalibur has always been the book on the fringe of the X-Universe, even at its most successful, which I guess would definitely be the Claremont Davis era early on and then the cross-time caper. Later on, the Warren Ellis years were successful as well. But Excalibur has always existed on the fringe of the X-Universe, and it's with good reason. It pays a little bit more attention to sort of this anglicized magic, and it plays a little bit more into Arthurian trope. Those of you who have listened to our 70s mutant reemergence and our 80s mutant mania feeds know that I am quite the Captain Britain fan. This one was a little tough to swallow for me. I've read literally every page of Captain Britain. Now, Jonah, other than, I want to say about 10 issues of the Alan Moore run, this was your first real deep dive into the Captain, right? Not just the Captain. This was my first deep dive into Betsy Braddock, Psylocke. I've never been introduced to her before. I don't know a lot about her. I know certain things that do happen to her and certain abilities she does have or 
It's very little information I have to go off of. So, and I don't know a lot about Jamie who makes an appearance into this book. So there's all the Braddocks that I don't know. God, I love, I just, I just love Jamie. I just love him so much. <laughs> I love to hate him, but I love to hate him, but I love him. And I love that he's monarch because that's a type of butterfly and Psylocke's a butterfly. And I just love it. Okay. So, um, anyway, Kyle, how much Captain Britain or Excalibur experience do you Excala have? Oh, let's see. I think I've read through the cross time caper and maybe a few issues past it but that's when while i was doing my reading on marvel unlimited the book started to become more sporadic so i kind of gave up I don't blame you. They've gone in and they filled in a lot more of those holes, and I especially think with all of the attention they're putting on Excalibur now, you're going to see a lot more of those issues go up. We're of course going to be covering all of those throughout 80s Mutant Mania and 90s Mutant Extreme or whatever horribly over-the-top thing we decide to call the 90s because god, you just can't get horrible or over-the-top enough to talk about 90s comics. Now Dylan, I know you are, you know, you are the X-Men king, young and sweet, only somewhat near Chicago, but (laughs) how much Captain Captain Britain Excalibur experience do you keep tied up in that head of yours? I've read everything that has Captain Britain in it that involves Excalibur. So most of his history, I didn't read any of those, the, like Captain Britain Solo and Captain Britain MI-13, but if it had anything to do with Excalibur, I read it. Oh man, I gotta be honest, Captain Britain and MI-13 is one of my favorite runs of all time. Like genuinely, it's a tremendous book. And then when that iteration of that team showed back up in X-Men Legacy, I was pleased as punch. I really love that era. But yeah, I think anytime it's called Excalibur, it's pretty great. I want to touch for one moment on the Excalibur that kind of never was. Now, in addition to the fact that this Excalibur had so many conceptual problems, I just want to touch on Excalibur Volume 3. The original run of Excalibur, which featured Chris Claremont, Alan Davis launching the title around Captain Britain and his team, based out of the, I guess, like, British magical lighthouse until they moved to Muir Island. It focused on a lot more kind of like Excalibur magical legend until it was forging this sort of mutant death destiny and it tried to be a thing but eventually the title lost its caveat there was a four issue miniseries by the guy who wrote the final arc of Excalibur didn't do a whole lot but it was pretty cool redesigns on Captain Britain they were pretty sexy then there was the third volume of Excalibur which followed Grant Morrison's new X-Men and featured Xavier and Magneto and the most ragtag group of misfit mutants ever that's when we got Karima the debut of Hub book. A lot of really interesting characters that I do enjoy a lot. That was some of the better use of Eunice in a really long time. I enjoyed the appearance of the Marauders in that iteration as well. There were things I enjoyed a lot about that run, but that was never meant to be called Excalibur. And it just drove me nuts because there was nothing Excalibarian about that. That should have been called like, that should have been New Mutants. It just wasn't because they couldn't have two teen books running around at the same time. But Dylan, as the only other person here who's read that Excalibur, What were your thoughts on how that fits into the bigger picture of the legend of Excalibur at X-Men? You know, they just a few months later relaunched it as New Excalibur. And when that didn't put enough distance, they relaunched it as Captain Britain and MI-13. I do feel like that was the Excalibur nail in the coffin. How about you? I would completely agree. Uh, Xavier and Magneto's Excalibur should not have been called Excalibur. There was nothing that tied them to that name at all. And New Excalibur was kind of fun. I mean, Dazzler with pink hair was... Neat. <laughs> and Nocturne? My precious, precious Nocturne? Well, I mean, Dazzler and Nocturne made that book. Nobody else really needed to be in it, not even Captain Britain. Captain Britain and Pete Wisdom is my only slash ship ever, so I would watch myself if I were you. <laughs> but. <laughs> 
do your thing. So, all right, let's talk about this Excalibur. I just want to put in my two cents as a Captain Britain canon fussy pot guy. I thought it was really cool that they tried to make Captain Britain canon accessible by streamlining it. That said, there was no acknowledgement of the number of ways in which this threw out enormous chunks of Captain Britain canon and magic. For a lot of my opinion, I would have been just as happy if this was called something else or perhaps tied into the idea of the Lionheart, which is another form of Captain Britain magic, because so much of this so rewrote elements of the canon beyond that the art was pretty good there were parts where i had trouble distinguishing some people the writing was mostly pretty good but i thought some people had kind of the same voice i occasionally had trouble figuring out who was who and what was happening but all right that was everything i need to say about this book before i just react to other people who wants to talk about excalibur number one by howard two and arcasena not particularly i think this might have been the first issue of this current x-men run where i wasn't terribly happy i wasn't terribly upset i give it a passing grade but uh, there was just a few too much that made me maybe not like it i loved apocalypse in this i love betsy and maybe someone can explain to me a possibility rogue's powers have been a hot button topic since her introduction from last i read from what people have said she had it under control but here they make it seem like she doesn't have her powers under control with no real explanation anybody more caught up on mr and mrs x that can maybe fill in the blanks there i haven't read that run yet but from what I was understanding, she has a power dampening bracelet. Right. Yeah. Yes. She's supposed to have that and supposed to be able so she can have, you know, sexy times with her husband. Right. But I, like, I, I, it comes off that like, she doesn't know what she's doing. It's just like they reset Rogue's abilities back a little too far. It's a dangerous game they play back and forth with her. I was going to say, I actually didn't read Mr. and Mrs. X. I behind on that. Yeah, I just, you know, in trying to catch up, like I said last episode, I was lured back in with the promise of there was just a handful of color titles, and then there were all these side books, and it seemed like everybody had a solo book, and it got really hard to keep up, so I do believe as a team we'll go back and fill in those gaps. I had been previously under the impression that she had her powers more under control than this, so this was also a sudden shock for me. I know she had control of her powers for quite some time, but then like when she was in a couple different Uncanny Avengers she didn't really have control of her power anymore. Uncanny Avengers was one of those books that pushed me over the edge. Axis was a really tough time for me. I want to comment on something Jonah said. Jonah commented that this was his first Betsy. You could do a whole lot worse for your first Betsy. This was a great read for her. Yeah, Jonah, you've kind of missed out on some pretty awful things about Betsy, so this is a good time for you and Betsy. I know we're probably going to discuss it a little bit when we talk about Fallen Angels next time. We'll talk about where that Psylocke came about. Oh, Quanin. Oh, Quanin. Speaking of Quanin, that was supposed to be her in the book, right? Where we saw some weird girl in a yellow shirt just staring at Betsy for a second? I want to say yes. No, I shouldn't be the one saying yes. I'm pretty sure it is. I have no idea. That was part of my problem with things in this book. I don't feel like a lot of names were said frequently enough. I think a lot of things were just sort of like hand waved. I felt certain characters didn't appear in the title, but were on the cover. And then other characters appeared on the character list, like they were going to be regulars or something. I felt a little thrown off. There was also a lot of prose here. One character who I knew nothing about, but I know you're a fan of Dylan, is Trinary. You know, I think she, for me knowing nothing about this character, she came 
off pretty cool, and I'm very interested to seeing the, I use this in quotes, relationship, whatever it's going to be, between the mutant formerly known as Apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. So let's talk about relationships with the mutant formerly known as Apocalypse. That piece of art where he is like, cherishingly holding Richter in a sexual embrace. Give it to me! I want it so bad. I want, I want who I'm affectionately referring to as, and Richter to get together so bad. Is that official art? What about Shatterstar? They're Polly. I know, but I need Shatterstar to be in this book just so I know he's alive. Oh no, that's that goes without question. And you know what's really funny? Shatterstar is genetically engineered and then moved into a human body that was mysteriously really close to his genetic engineering. So here's where I'm kind of like, how like what level of how is the which body and which genetic who? What? <laughs> exactly, Kyle. <laughs> I said nothing untrue. He, he didn't. Which also makes me wonder if people like Shatterstar or Longshot can go to Krakoa. I don't think they can. I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows if they really are mutants or not. Moving on. And that's part of what's... But no, no. I actually really do love that you're bringing that up because that brings me to something I have thought a lot about since it initially came up. John Hickman made this grandiose statement about being able to restore mutant genomes back a step. Now, I don't know how much Excalibur everybody's read, but Brian is a mutant. He is. Brian is an otherworldian mutant so that is part of his canon and that they're saying oh no he's not is weird because he has non-human dna in him by virtue of being an otherworld mutant and i feel very much like they're sort of like cherry picking pieces to make work here and that's fine i i kind of get it but jamie is also a mutant and i feel like they're just okay so anyway if what they can do is they can regenerate people to certain places in their life i feel like they're doing some really weird choices because if jamie is regenerating at any point in which his powers are activated, that is the dumbest shit you have ever done. If you're going to regenerate Jamie, he needs to not have his reality warping powers. For those who aren't familiar, Jamie sees reality as a series of strings tied together and plucks at them. So like, Jamie thinks it's fun to do things like point at someone and then they turn into a mouse that has been skinned and then is their bones were turned into a tiny chair. And that's like a Jamie thing. That's a thing he'll just do. So, I'm not really sure where bringing Jamie back was the right move. I also think bringing Betsy back at any point if they have to is gonna have to, she was a precog for years. So like she was a precog when she was in this body. So are they bringing her back without her precognition? And beyond that, I'm fascinated to know how they're going to handle... All right, I think this, you know, this prophecy where Morgan Le Fay, who, by the way, never really a big Captain Britain villain ever, so this is so strange. Morgan Le Fay is like, ah, it's the one or the other. I mean, obviously, I think the, the dark one is meant to be Jamie, because Jamie's, you know, bad news Braddocks. But I find the idea that the magic of Captain Britain can be so easily corrupted kind of weird. It doesn't really fit in with the canon, so much and i think merlin is gonna need to make a big ass appearance because merlin and roma are so tied to the central idea of excalibur i just this was like this is my thing so i have a lot of feels about it I love Betsy as Captain Britain. I couldn't be happier. I think she makes a great Captain Britain. I just think that we continue to exist in a world of storytelling binaries where for Betsy to be Captain Britain, Brian can't be Captain Britain and he has to be darkened and there's a good one and a bad one. This idea 
of operating in this forced binary code, even if it's just for a period of time, is kind of reductive of the storytelling. The Captain Britain mythos has to do with a great number of iterations of the same ideal representing the same force in multiple universes. It's the multiverse of Captain Britain's, and they are a core. So there's no reason that our Brian couldn't have simply been dispatched in his otherworldly duties, as at one point he was Omniversal Magestor of the multiverse. And he has kind of like, at one point he had like reality altering powers as a result of this. So there's a lot of, I find myself sort of, okay, so Brian was just instantly corrupted and you can just hand off the Captain Britain powers now. And it does seem a little bit like the creative team in an effort to make an accessible, interesting story is foregoing huge elements of the canon. And I appreciate that they're trying to make a book that is accessible to new readers. I guess I just wish it didn't come so heavily at the cost of my fandom. And I'm willing to see where this goes. I loved every weird change MI-13 made to the canon, and I loved every weird change New Excalibur made to the canon. And if this could go somewhere really dynamic, right? If like Apocalypse and his involvement in separating Okara can maybe come into this, and maybe that's the sword, right? Because he was like cleaved with a sword, and maybe it's this sword. And I'm really excited to know where this is all going to go. But I guess I had more feels about this than I thought. (laughs) So speaking of feels, can we talk about mothers and their children in this book? Because one, oh my goodness, Megan, that child. Oh my goodness. I technically haven't met Meg yet, but whatever Nico has told me, I am more in love with a character that I haven't met yet than I have been with anybody. So I'm super excited for when I do get to meet her in Excalibur. But I think I had a slight problem with Jubilee in this. In not that the way she's written, but if Jubilee has a child and she's uh, really... here to raise and protect her son, I wish they would have included someone who might be more enthusiastic about saving uh, Camelot. You know, it's, I don't want someone who's just there to be there. If you want to have Jubilee's story be focused on motherhood, that's fine. Do whatever you want. But that feels like you're taking a slot from a character that could be written and get a new spotlight to actually enjoy and want to be there. And at the end of the day, and it's best day, Excalibur is a tertiary book. And I feel like there was a ton of room for Jubilee in one of the more main books and you could have used a character like Blink or a character like Chamber who has a genetic connection to Apocalypse in an interesting way because I am concerned that Jubilee is getting sidelined here. I am not sure what the fuck Ambit and Rogue are doing in this book. Like there's just a lot of people for how much spotlight is going to be given to Betsy and Apocalypse. Well, I think that Rogue's part is she is taking the part of the new Krakoa topiary. Well, then I think I have some concerns that they're fridging a goddess. I think we're talking about an all-powerful character who I know you love. You know, I know Megan is somebody who she's so like you, Kyle, in that she represents this effervescent happiness and she's this bubbly, joyful creature who just wants everyone to be happy. And that is very you to be around Kyle is to have that vibe. And she is an empath. I'm just, she is, she's a super duper empath. And I'm just really worried that so much of creating an Excalibur that is readily accessible to a new audience is going to come at the cost of characters who have been well-established and, eh, I don't know. But we can all agree that that page of Betsy as Captain Britain is like the greatest page ever, right? (laughs) It is a pretty awesome image. I wanted to add something to you talking about how Excalibur is kind of changing characters a little bit. At the beginning of the book, when Trinary is talking to Apocalypse and... For those of you that don't know too much about Trinary, like Jonah, Trinary can speak to technology and she used to control her own Sentinel. So she's very much up there with Cypher and Sage. At the beginning of the book, she's talking to Apocalypse about this Krakoan gateway that doesn't work and that they've done tons of studies and things on it. And then Apocalypse seems to 
say that we all depend too much on technology. And then he starts slightly talking about magic. And I feel like that's a little bit off for Apocalypse because most of Apocalypse's history has been him getting ahead of everyone by using technology. That's an amazing point. One of my big notes throughout my notes is that Apocalypse is suddenly like, I'm a sorcerer. And I'm like, okay, all right, that's cool. And it was something fascinating because Kyle, you brought up that there is now this coven of uh-huh. Akaba, but it used to be the clan Akaba. And it was kind of like worshiping him as like a technological god. So it's really interesting that he is so aggressively turning his back on science and so religiously turning his heart toward magic. That's a really great point, though. It does feel very disingenuous that Apocalypse is saying people rely too much on technology when that is literally how he has remained alive this long. Completely agree. The last thing I want to touch on this weird book, it's talking about witches and blood children, whatever. I have no idea. Uh, it was weird and it, I'm noticing a trend with Hickman's writing of these are issues that are going to come up, so I'm going to talk about them for three seconds and then, but that's not what the main narrative is about. I kind of wish that's not how he wrote as much as i am enjoying everything he's talking about i wish he spent more time either talking about the main story or giving the side stories that are going to cause problems later more of a spotlight that they need to to give readers a little more information and a little more of an idea of how big of an issue is this actually going to be and that's one of the things that happens when you have a flagship title where the writer oversees the line so while these may not be necessarily the tropes that all of the writers would use and while these might not all be written by Jonathan Hickman, Jonathan Hickman as the architect behind the Dawn of X has his fingers in all of the pies. And that's an important thing to remember. That's how he handled his Avengers world. He used it as a launching point to get ideas into the other titles. He was running something like four or five Avengers books at once and was either co-writing or overseeing. And it's a really powerful way to establish a line and to give it that cohesion. I think it's unbelievable that he's taking on giant size X-Men in addition to X-Men and New Mutants and overseeing all of these titles and I can only imagine he's the guy writing the Moira title. It feels like John Hickman is going to be churning out six or seven X books a week at some point and I will be interested to see how many of the books fight to have their own voice. One of the more shocking things that's come out of the X office in the last few years is the triumphant return of X-Force Ecstatics by Pete Milligan and Mike Allred. They've confirmed that a sequel series is going to begin in early 2020. I cannot imagine that this is going to fit into the Dawn of X in any smooth way. But then again, Ecstatics never really fit into the new X-Men universe quite so cohesively, and that was a dream come true. Probably the most important thing that happened in the book, and that is the fact that Fabio is no longer going by gold balls, he's going by egg. Oh, now I like how you say egg. <laughs> say that again. Egg. Egg. <laughs> Kyle, egg. say egg. Okay. Jonah, say egg. egg. Dylan, say egg. 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 I love it! I love it! <laughs> oh, you go, egg. You sound like the Fonz trying to order breakfast. This is awesome. I was just going to say I sound like... Freaking egg and cheese. I hate this character and I hope he dies. <laughs> but then he can't bring himself back. I know that's the point, so then I'll never miss say his name ever again and we can all move on. But... Just like Betsy, I believe we're going to tell him it's not going to stick. It's not going to stick. No, he's going to have to use some Pam and these eggs are going to slide right off of this pan. And until they slide off of this pan and onto my plate, Kyle, where can everybody find you eating you eggs? You find me eating eggs on both, on both Twitter and Instagram at Transus82. Damn it. <laughs>
<laughs> Dylan, where can everybody find you? Eating eggs. Uh, I, I'm going to find my way to the other world and make sure that that gate never opens so I can stay away from the three of you. But <laughs> in the meantime, you can find me on Facebook at my Facebook group for everything X-Men that is called House of X. And you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Propositioning every mutant to make more mutants. Or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. I know it makes sense because they're married. But still, uh, Nico, where can everybody find you? <laughs> you guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML, where we cover things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Fox Marvelverse, Star Wars, Alien, and more. Don't forget to check out the other amazing feeds of this show, like 80s Mutant Mania on Monday. If you enjoy what you hear from me, you might enjoy looking at me over on Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And if you like what I look like, you might didn't like my comics which are over at kidriotcomics.com alright that's enough no more talking and until next time when we tell you guys a little something about wearekrokoa.com we'll see ya bye bye see ya